Good morning, Sweetwater Christian Church, uh, and good morning, everybody watching, listening online. We're glad you could worship with us this morning. I'm Zane Goggins. I'm the pastor here at Sweetwater Christian Church, and I'm glad to be with you to share the love and word of God with you this morning. So let's all pray together. Let's ask for receptive hearts to receive God's love and word this morning. Father, we come before you as your children. We ask that you would give us hearts that receive you, eyes that see, ears that hear you. I pray that everything that I made up would just fall to the ground, and everything that you have to say to us this morning would be received with gladness and joy this morning. God, we love you. We ask for the grace to love you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, this is the second week of Advent. And uh, as we said last week during the week of hope, Advent is a month-long celebration of anticipation. That is what we are doing this month. Everything around us, the decorations, the gifts under the tree, the candles, the art, um, the traditions, the music is supposed to stir up anticipation in our hearts. Uh, we're anticipating the day when Jesus arrives. We are actively anticipating Jesus to show up in the world, in our lives, and for a second time. That's what it means to have hope, to wait well for the Lord's arrival. This week is the week of love. So if you remember, Advent has four weeks in it, and each week has a a certain theme attached to it. It's hope, love, joy, peace. It's different depending on what tradition you grew up with. This is just my favorite one. So hope, love, joy, and peace. And each one of those builds off of one another until we finally reach what we've hoped for, the culmination, the Christmas day. Uh, This is the week of love. You could say this is the week of God, because God is love. But I'll be a little more specific as we talk about the love of God within the specific context of the Christmas story. The love of God, as it is perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the perfect expression of God's love. And, Ad, and because Advent is a month-long celebration of anticipation of the Lord's arrival, today we are actively living in anticipation to receive God's love in the world and in our lives. That is what today is all about, receiving the love of God. I wonder if anyone here is like me. Some Christmases... Uh, are a little more festive than other Christmases. Uh, Some Christmases, we just do more Christmas things where we drive around and look at lights like we did last night. We bake special holiday treats. Uh, We put up the tree on time. We listen to Christmas music, watch all of our favorite Christmas movies all the way through. We go to community events and, and parties for Christmas time. And then there are some years where... Christmas season feels a little more laid back. I don't really mean that in a relaxed way. What I mean is that uh, sometimes by the end of December, I look back and I wish I had done more of those things so it felt more like Christmas. Does anybody uh, relate to that at all? 
um, I, I sometimes say to myself, man, how did Christmas get here so fast? We just did less of those things. We traveled too much, or it was just generally harder to feel those special Christmas feelings. In a laid-back Christmas season, I always look back and I think of what I could have done differently to make it feel more Christmassy, watch Christmas vacation all the way through, or drink more hot chocolate. I don't know, but we all know that's probably not what would have fixed it. And what I've come to learn is that preparing for Christmas is just as important as celebrating the day of Christmas. Preparing for Christmas is just as important as celebrating the day of Christmas. It's really all about these four weeks that lead up to Christmas Day. It's these four weeks of anticipating God to show up. With Christmas Day as the final expression of that anticipation. So I just want to encourage you, don't let the next three weeks pass you by. Prepare Uh, prepare for Christmas, whether you're having a more festive season or not, whether you're ready or not, Christmas is coming. And the very first Christmas was actually very similar. There were uh, people who were ready with anticipation for the Lord's arrival, for the Savior of the world, and there were some people who were caught off guard, surprised that the Lord's arrival happened so soon. And we are either ready or unprepared for the incarnation. So we'll be in John 1, 1 through 18 today. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. There's Bibles in front of you or under you. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. If you want to learn how to use a Bible, email me and we'll set up a time together. John 1, 1 through 18. There's a small handful of passages in the Bible where I turn to if I want to basically guarantee a worshipful experience for myself. John 1, 1 through 18 is one of those passages. Uh, Galatians 1 is an, or Colossians 1 is another one of those. But we're about to read one of the most underrated Christmas passages of all time, of all time. But one of the most worshipful passages of scripture that exists Today, we will prepare ourselves for the expressed love of God in what is called the incarnation. Uh, And we will see that when God goes into something, that thing is never the same again. That's what we're ultimately going to see today. We heard in the reading earlier that the love of God uh, made it to where God gave his son into the world. And so our text today will show us how God lovingly gave his son for the world. So John 1, 1 through 18, I'm reading from the NRSV this morning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, has come into the world. 
He was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, this is of whom I have said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. Okay. This passage of scripture describes God, divinity, becoming a human and living with us as a human. In theology, we call this the incarnation. Uh, You've probably heard this word before, probably during Christmas time. The word incarnation just literally means embodied in flesh or taking on flesh or being wrapped in flesh. That's what incarnation means, just literally. Uh, It's when a deity is embodied in human flesh, bones, and blood. When we say God became a human, what we are saying is that God incarnated himself. God humanified himself is what we're saying. He took on flesh, bones, and blood, and teeth, and eyes, and elbows, and tears, and toes, and he has a brain, and a spleen, and a heart, and a pancreas, and lungs. The creator of all those things now has all of those things. Now remember, it's easy to lose sight of this. Jesus is both human and divine. I said this last week. Last week, I needed to reemphasize his humanity. Uh, And this week, I think it's necessary to reemphasize his divinity. God is still God, even as a human. And this can be a hard concept to wrap our minds around. Nobody totally understands it. If somebody says they do, they're lying to you. Nobody really gets it. Okay, Uh, what we're describing when we talk about Jesus being God and a human, we're going to learn some theology, is something called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. Uh, That's just a technical term that describes both states of being, divine and human, existing in one hypostasis. What does that mean? That just means one existence. So both Uh, states of being in one existence, uh, one singular life, one person, meaning Jesus doesn't live two lives. He doesn't live an earthly life and and a heavenly life. He lives one life as an individual existence, but he's a two in one kind of living being. Uh, And it's totally unique to him. And so rather than trying to find what I was going to try to do is try to find examples of what it means for two to be in one. Rather than try to find some imperfect examples, what I think is best is to think of the hypostatic union, not as a description of Jesus, but as a title for Jesus. Jesus is 
the hypostatic union. He, he's the only one that could ever, can ever, and will ever have it. It's his title. It's unique to him. And alone, it will never be applied to anybody else. Jesus is the enfleshment, incarnation of the hypostatic union. Flesh, blood, bones, divinity, humanity. What we have in the incarnation, in the individual existence of divinity and humanity, is a God who decides that all the pain and all the suffering and all of the joy and all of the mundane things that we experience as people, what we get is a God who wants to identify with those things. God desires to identify with those things for whatever reason. It, it's the ultimate way of saying God, God came to identify with us as the ultimate way of telling us, I wouldn't tell you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. God says, love your enemies. And as a human like you and I, God did that. God says to live a righteous life. And as a human, God did that. God says to take special care of those who are disenfranchised or poor. And as a human, God did that. Not to prove that it could be done, but to reveal the moral and theological truths about himself. It says in our text, and the word became flesh and lived among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. God lived among us as one of us so that he could reveal the truth about himself. So this naturally begs the question, what is the truth about God? What is the glory of God that John is talking about? What does flesh and bones and blood, being a human, say about what is true about God? Well, if we want to know what is true about God, we have to listen to what God says. If you wanted to learn something about me, you would ask me and I would tell you something true about myself. If I were to ask you what is true about you, you would tell me and then I would learn something true about you. And if you want to learn what is true about God, you have to listen to what God says. So what is God saying? What is his word? Well, John tells us the word of God became flesh and lived among people. The word of God became flesh and lived among us. The Greek word used for lived among us is eskenosin, which literally means he, he pitched his tent. Uh, God moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson says. Jesus is the word of God and the word of God lived and breathed. Jesus is what God says about himself. Jesus is what God says about himself. Uh, Jesus is the truth about God. If you want to learn what is true about God, you don't find it in a string of words. You don't find it in an anecdote. You find it in one existence, one hypostasis, one person. You find it in Jesus because Jesus is what God says about himself. And it is Jesus who makes known to us what God is really like. 
Jesus is what God says about himself. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Uh, The book of Malachi, it's an Old Testament book. Malachi was a prophet. Uh, It's the last book in your Old Testament. It's also the last uh, book of the prophets in the the Jewish Bible. Uh, And our our Old Testament isn't in canonical order. It's not in uh, chronological order either. But our Bible does get this one thing right. Malachi is the last prophet to speak for God in the Bible, the Old Testament at least. And so, uh, and then after Malachi is written, 400 years pass by. 400 years pass by. For 400 years, nobody knew what God had to say because God didn't speak through any more prophets. God was silent. God wasn't talking. It was a period of time that we call the intertestimonial period. There's things going on. Uh, you know, there's the Alexander the Great. There's the Hasmoneans. There's the, 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 the battle where we get uh, the tradition of Hanukkah. All of these things are happening, but God isn't saying anything. God hasn't said anything for hundreds of years. It was not just a time of anticipation. It was a time of anxious uh, anticipation. Will God say anything again? Will God reveal anything about himself anymore? 400 years of silence goes by. And then, out of nowhere, God gives his greatest revelation about himself to date. And God has to say something now. And what God has to say is, here is a baby. That's what God has to say. God has now come into the world. But why did God do this? Why did God stay silent for 400 years? And then the way he decides to talk is not by the way he's always done it, which is find a good and faithful prophet and say something to them, and then they write it down, and then all of Israel hears it. Why did he rather like, come to live among people by being born in a rough town under sketchy circumstances uh, to a family without any prominence? Why did God send his son into the world? Some uh, were ready for the incarnation and some were not. <clears throat> in fact, most people were not ready for the Lord to arrive, much less in this way. So why did God send his son to us? Well, you heard it in our scripture reading earlier, actually. John 3, 16, the the verse, right? The Bible verse. The, what I call is just the most underrated Christmas verse of all time. We use it as a mini gospel message, but I think it's actually better as a Christmas verse. God sent his only son into the world because he loves the world. All of that intense complex theology, incarnation of the logos, the word, the hypostatic union, God identifying with humans, all of that was just because God loves the world. God loves, he loves us. He loves walking water bags of bones and brains. That's what we are. God loves 
walking water bags of bones and brains because God loves you. And every bit of you was created by God. You're either fearfully and wonderfully made or you're not, but God says you are. If you don't get anything out of the message today, at least hear this. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Not only does he love you, but he loves you so much that he himself became a divine walking water bag of bones and brains just to be that close to you, just to identify with you, just to be able to be like you. Because God loves the world, God entered the world. And here is even the greater truth of the incarnation. This is the greater truth of Christmas. When God, specifically God's love, enters into something, that something is not the same anymore. What does that mean? It means that when God entered into the world and when God entered into your heart, the world and you were different afterwards. Can anybody attest to that? It's called a testimony right? Uh, Who in here knows the truth of this statement that uh, where you can look back to a time in your life when you didn't know the love of God? You may have even been a Christian at the point, but then you met the love of God. It entered into you and suddenly everything is different for you. It's it's self-evident. Yes, you're still you. You have the same aches and pains. You may live in the same place, have the same family dynamics, whether great or not so great. You may have the same car, the same job, the same haircut, the same clothes from college in your closet, but God's love changed you when it entered into your life. At some point, you started to love people that you disagreed with. At some point, you started to care about the poor and the disenfranchised rather than just yourself. At some point, you started to give your time and resources to the things that God loves. At some point, God's love changed you. You could say you were reborn. And the real question is, are you prepared for when God's love shows up again? But you were not the only thing that changed when the love of God entered the world the world itself changed too. In fact, John in our passage today seems to be saying that the world more than changed, but in a real way, the world was sort of recreated. John isn't just making up words when he writes this opening statement of his gospel. He isn't just being poetic just to be poetic either. Uh, Here in chapter one, John is actually doing some serious theological reframing of the way the world works. Because he knows that when God has now become a person, everything, even the foundations of creation are completely different. They changed because Jesus, the expression of God's love, has entered our world. So let me show you what I mean. You can keep your Bible open to John 1. John 1 starts with, in the beginning. Is there another book of the Bible that begins with, in the beginning? It's Genesis. It's Genesis. Yeah, it's Genesis. 
uh, in Genesis. Uh, John, what he's doing is he's rewriting the beginning of creation based on the arrival of God in the world. Let me further prove that to you. Genesis 1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 says, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that does not belong. Genesis 1 says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And then God separated the light from the darkness. And John says, In him was life. And the life was the light of people. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. In Jesus Christ, the perfect example and the perfect expression of God's love, the world is never the same as it was. In fact, it is so different. You could say that the world itself is reborn. That is the level of theology John is doing here in his passage today. The love of God in a very real way is the reason why the world changed on Christmas Day when the Lord arrived into the world. And the question is, are you prepared for when he shows up in the world again? This is what the incarnation gives us. The word of God taking on flesh in Jesus Christ means that God has committed to moving in with us in order to change us. And he committed to moving in with us because of his deep love for us and the world. Jesus is the exact and perfect expression of the love of God. And in this season of Advent, we not only anticipate for the arrival of his love on Christmas Day, but we also anticipate the arrival of his love in our own lives. The love of God is coming. So let's anticipate it together this season. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we ask that you would give us, a, give us an urgency to actively anticipate the arrival of your son on Christmas Day, in our own lives, and whenever day he comes again. Father, give us Give us the, not an anxious anticipation, but an anticipation knowing that you are going to show up. Father, help us to be prepared for the time when you do show up because you're faithful. Thank you for being faithful to us. We bless you. And we, ask for, uh, we ask that you would bless us, keep us, make your face shine on us. We love you and we need the grace to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.